great to be with you all again this evening. As I mentioned, we're wrapping up this summer-long series we've been doing, walking through the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, maybe you're not familiar with that, but essentially there's these five sort of core commitments uh, that were central to uh, Protestantism 500 years ago when there was this split in the Catholic Church. But they're also central to us today as Protestants, these five sort of truths that shape us in the way that we relate to one another and the way that we relate to God. And I mentioned the first week of this series uh, that my intention here is not for us to just sort of circle the wagons and say, hey, isn't it great that none of us are Catholic? Uh, that's, that would be the, the greatest waste of time that I could possibly imagine. Uh, of course, we need to talk about the differences that are there, uh, why it is that we are not necessarily Roman Catholics but the hope for me is that more than that, this would be a time where we're kind of exploring uh, the beauty of our own home country, if you will. And maybe this will help explain what I'm trying to get at. Um, the last couple months of my senior year in high school, this mood sort of set in in my circle of friends because so many of them were going away to school, whether they were just kind of going an hour and a half away to something like UCF or they were going across the state to something like UF or FSU or across the country going all over the place. But the mood that sort of settled in was this, I hate where I'm from, I can't wait to go somewhere else. I hate the city that I'm in and I want to be in another city. Um, I think that's sort of a natural process of growing up. When you've been in one place for long enough, even if it's irrational, you develop this sort of disdain for it. That all of the problems you've experienced there are somehow the place's fault and not your fault. More often than not, it's your fault. Uh, but that's the sense that sort of developed among my friends, and that's fine. Uh, so many of them went away to school. Most of them came back, so joke's on you. Um, but for, for me and, and a couple of my close friends, uh, we didn't have the ability to go away. Like, we weren't raking in the scholarships. Uh, we, we didn't come from a, a great deal of, of money to where we could afford to go away to school. And so we kind of just settled in and of ourselves like, hey, this is where we are. We're going to make the most out of it. And, and so we started spending uh, like our Friday nights in downtown Tampa, Tampa Heights, Seminole Heights, Ybor City, places like that before uh, they had all these Instagram worthy spots, like back when Tampa was dangerous. Uh, we were hanging out downtown and in Tampa Heights and, and all these places. And this interesting thing happened is for me and all my friends in our early 20s, as we're sort of uh, discovering the city we're in, we began to recognize that there was a beauty there that we'd missed by virtue of proximity. Like we were too close to see it. But the more that we looked and the more that we actually saw, we kind of began to realize, hey, Tampa's not so bad. There's actually some pretty cool stuff here. We just didn't notice it. Uh, because we were too close to see it. And that can happen to us in our, our Christian lives as well. That can happen to us in our church lives. We've spent our whole lives in a particular church, and we think that if we just went somewhere else across the street uh, with hipper worship and a more engaging pastor, that all of the problems we see here wouldn't be here. Uh, but the, the fact is that, that sometimes you are the problem, uh, and other times the problem is that you're not actually seeing what's in front of you. Uh, we can have this longing for elsewhere, without acknowledging the beauty of where we are. And, and here's my hope, is that as we've looked at some of these truths that are, that are ours as Protestants, uh, they're ours as, as this branch of Christianity, that we see kind of the inherent beauty in these realities. We've walked through four of these five solas. The first being sola scriptura, that the final authority in the life of the church of Jesus Christ is Scripture. 
We talked about sola gratia, that God saves us by grace alone. There's nothing we do to merit our salvation. We talked about sola fide, that it's through faith that we're made right before God. Solus Christus, that it's through Christ and Christ alone that we can approach God. And we come this week to the last of the solas, soli deo gloria, glory be to God alone. A couple weeks ago, uh, I guess it was a couple months ago now, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine when the most recent Star Wars movie came out. Not the Han Solo one, but the the one that everybody was really angry about. And and we were talking about, like, I'm I'm not a diehard Star Wars fan. I care about Star Wars when a new movie comes out. And I care about it for about a week leading up to that movie and a week after that movie. And then I just go back into hibernation until the next one comes out. But I was talking to my friend who is like a diehard Star Wars fan. And he was telling me how there's sort of this agreed-upon order in which you should watch the movies, at least according to him. I could be wrong, so don't crucify me if you're one of these diehard Star Wars fans and I've botched it. But he said that like most people who love Star Wars agree that you, you start with episode four, which is the first one that came out, and you watch episode five, which is the one where you find out, Luke, I am your father, the Darth Vader situation. And then you actually go back to the really terrible trilogy in the early 2000s. You skip Phantom Menace because it's garbage. And then you watch the second and the third ones in that trilogy so that you figure out who Darth Vader is. And then you jump back forward, or I guess you jump back, forward in Star Wars time, backwards in our time, and you watch The Return of the Jedi. And then you move on to sort of the the current trilogy that's coming out now. There's this agreed-upon order. That's how you're meant to experience the story. There is no such order for the solas. Uh, You can read ten authors, and it comes in ten different ways. But we've chosen as a ministry, to end our time together with this one. Soli Deo Gloria, glory to God alone. And I think that's fitting. I think that's fitting because the more that I think about the other four solas, the more convinced I am that this fifth one, this final one, isn't actually a sola. Uh, so much as it is sort of a song that's beginning to emerge in light of everything else that's, else that's been said. It's, it's not a thing unto itself, but it's the natural uh, song and chorus that arises in response to everything that's been said. And so we want to be attentive to that song tonight as we conclude this series. We're going to be spending our time uh, hearing this song in the key of Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. So if you have your Bible, you can turn there. Again, that's Romans 11, 33 to 36. And let me give you the context as you're doing that. It'll be on the screen if you don't have a Bible. So Romans is a letter written by the Apostle Paul. Paul is one of the more famous individuals in the New Testament, one of the most prominent leaders in the early Christian church. He writes a number of letters. There's 13 in your New Testament. But Romans is unique. Uh, Romans is written sometime around 57 AD to a community of Christians in the city of Rome, as the name would suggest. But it also seems as though Paul has actually never met these people face to face. As Paul writes the letter, he keeps saying, I wish that I could have met with you. I longed to be with you. I longed to see you, but I was prevented. So Paul has had sort of a long-distance friendship with these people. Maybe he's exchanged letters. Uh, Maybe he's just heard. And he mentions hearing about the faith of the Roman Christians. They're so well-known in the early church that their reputation precedes them. But Paul doesn't know these people. And yet he writes to them saying, "I'm, I'm hoping to be with you. I'm hoping to be able to preach among you. But the letter of Romans is sort of a precursor of what he's going to say. He's walking through really the whole scope of the gospel. He walks through things that we've talked about in this series, sin and the need for grace. He talks about the place of Israel, the Old Testament scriptures, and the plan of salvation. He talks about the fact that we're justified by faith. 
He talks about the saving work of Christ. He works through all of these different significant points, and this book is dense. Like most pastors that I pay attention to say that they are not interested in preaching Romans until they turn 50 because they just feel too stupid until then. And I tend to defer to them because they're smarter than I am. Romans is intense. It's, it's a weighty bit of theology working out the implications of what it means to be saved. But then we come to our passage, our, our text for the evening. Eleven chapters in, Paul has been unpacking all of these different Christian truths about grace and salvation and the Old Testament and the justification and righteousness. And then he comes to this text that we'll spend our evening and he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Now I've given you sort of a whirlwind tour of Romans, but if you were just reading Romans from chapter 1 to chapter 11, when you hit this particular section, it would take you by surprise. Because he's been unfolding an argument for 11 chapters and then all of a sudden he breaks out into this sort of lyrical poetry. Like most, most commentators would say that Paul is actually basically writing a doxology. And that may not be a term you've heard before. Doxology is basically just a short hymn of praise to God. So we'll sing a doxology later on tonight. Maybe you know it. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. It's this very short, very succinct song of praise. And so here's what Paul is doing, is he's, he's working through all of these philosophical, theological, intellectual arguments, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he breaks out into praise, like mid-sentence, and then he just gets back to what he was talking about. You know, a lot of times, we as, we as Christians talk about the authority of Scripture. We say that the Bible is authoritative, and I, with no hesitancy in my heart, can affirm that I believe the Bible is inerrant, it's infallible, it's inspired, men wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. But when we say things like this, the Bible has authority, normally what we mean is that what the Bible says, like the words of the Bible have authority. But I think I would want to take that a step further and say this. Um, The way that the Bible says things also has authority. It's not just the words itself, but it's the forms that are given to us in Scripture. It's the way that the words go. Here's what I mean by this in light of our passage. Um, Paul is working through something dense. Like if you want to read the first 11 chapters of Romans, uh, you're going to need to put your thinking cap on. He's working through all these heavy theological ideas that people are still debating today. Like Romans commentaries are still being published, people waging a war against each other, trying to figure out what it means. It is heavy. And right in the middle of all of that theology, Paul breaks out into worship. The point is this. We can have all sorts of conversations about God. We can read all sorts of uh, dense and dusty books written by smart, dead people. But if that doesn't terminate in worship, you've wasted your time. Like, like one of the things that I love about this ministry is that there's so many people who are interested in the deep things of God. You're interested in having a conversation about the sort of stuff that most people spend their whole lives never considering. I love being able to talk with you all about this, but hear me when I say this. If all of your theologizing, if all of our conversation around these solas, if it doesn't end in us worshiping God with greater fervor and greater energy, then for all of our talk about being biblical, we're not doing theology like the Bible does. All of your conversations about God, your impressive vocabulary, 
All of it is fundamentally unbiblical because the Bible always talks about God so that we might worship him better. And this is what happens with Paul. Here's the contents of Paul's song when he erupts in praise. He says, oh, the depths of the riches, the wisdom, and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. He starts by talking about the depths of the riches of God. Now, what's important to grasp here is when Paul talks about the riches of God, he's not talking about God's money. Like, he's not talking about the contents of his bank account as if God needed a bank account. Like, the whole cosmos is his bank account in some ways. Um, Douglas Moo, who's a commentator on Romans, um, says that when Paul talks about the riches of God here, he's actually talking about God's kindness. The riches of God's kindness, especially in salvation. So what, what he's saying here is not, oh my gosh, God has so much money. But what he's saying is, oh, the depths of the riches of God's kindness towards us. So we live in Florida. Um, and it's sort of a suitable and expected way to pass the time that if you live in Florida and you have a day off, you go to the beach. Uh, I know a lot of people who do that with their days off. Beach days are a very common thing. You can have fun with that. I'm going to stay home. Uh, I don't have any, like, deep-seated love of the beach. Although, ultimately, uh, I don't actually think it's the beach itself that I don't like. Like, I will gladly stand on the shore and watch people have fun in the ocean. That's cool. I'll even sit on, like, a blanket and try and get a suntan. But the ocean terrifies me, like, to no end. And and I've been reflecting on this deep-seated and literally, like, insatiable fear of deep bodies of water. I'm like, I don't think it's the water itself, because, like, the pool is great. I I can sit in the pool for forever. I know how to swim. Like, I'm not afraid of drowning. So I've been thinking about, like, where does this come from? And here's what I've concluded. One of the places it comes from is me watching TNT in elementary school, which was a TV channel. I don't know if it still is or not. They were playing Jaws 2 on TNT. And, And there's this scene in Jaws 2 where there's this guy in a boat, And in the boat, he's in this sort of channel. It's between these two pieces of land. But the water is deep. Like, it is dark water. You can't see the bottom. And Jaws, being the super shark that he is, uh, knocks this guy's boat over. So the guy's just floating in the water, and he doesn't know that it's Jaws, the super shark, who did it. And so he's got one arm over the boat, and he's trying to flag somebody down to help him turn his boat back over or pick him up and take him back to shore. And there's this scene, and it's this top-down camera scene where you can just see his little boat and the the vast abyss that is the ocean. And out of the murky depths, Jaws appears, and he just grabs him and silently pulls him under. And I said, that's what's in the ocean. I don't want to be there anymore. Like, that's, that's the reality of the depths of the ocean, is that things like that are down there. And there could be like 15 of them, and I'd never see them, never going into the ocean again. Um, which is is ridiculous and probably unfounded, but this is... This is how I live. Um, The point being that that my fear is rooted in this reality, that that the vastness of the ocean, the the depths of of what is beneath me is frightening because of how much could be beneath me. Um, Paul uses this image of the depths to describe the kindness of God, the the riches of the kindness of God. He, He wants you to have in your mind the vastness of the depths of the deepest oceans when you think about the kindness of God. 
like any analogy, it runs into the wall of the creator-creature distinction, which, which is this. Um, the deepest ocean you can fathom on this planet or any other still has a bottom. Uh, there is still a limit to the depths in the created order. But the riches of the kindness of God are without end. He says, oh, the depths of the riches. That's the riches of God's kindness. We see this kindness played out in, in all these things that we've talked about over the summer. God's kindness in, in giving us scripture to bear witness to who he is and what he's done. God's kindness to save us by grace in spite of ourselves. God's kindness to, to place in us saving faith so that we can be justified. God's kindness in sending Christ so that we might be redeemed even when we didn't deserve it. Beginning to end, the story of salvation is about the overflow of the depths of the riches of the kindness of God. But it's important to understand what kindness is and how it, it factors into our salvation. Um, like two weeks ago, uh, I bought a new car. And that was my first time ever buying a new car because normally I had $1,000 cars that lasted me for as long as I could keep them alive. I'll never buy a new car again. Miserable experience. Just too many papers to sign. It was, it was a lot. But there's this understood aspect to buying a car where there's this like heckling back and forth. Like the car dealer uh, goes back to the offices and comes back with a number and then you sort of try and like haggle him down to a lower number and then he's like, I don't know if I can do that but let me talk to somebody and you, you kind of just go back and forth. It's like this barter and trade thing. And eventually you sort of agree upon a price. So, so imagine if, if I were to say something uh, to the effect of, you know, the, the car salesman was really kind to me I actually was able to sort of barter him down to knocking off a couple thousand dollars. That just feels wrong. Right? There's, there's not anything kind about me like heckling somebody into giving me what I want. And even if he does in fact give me what I want, which is a cheaper car. This, this is not an act of kindness. This is coercion. Right? I've convinced you to do something for me. There's nothing kind about it. It's manipulative in some ways. Hear me when I say this. Your salvation was not done in response to anything that you did. You, you didn't heckle God into saving you. There, there was nothing that you did to warrant the salvation that you received. It is beginning to end in the fullest sense of the word, kindness and kindness alone. It's, it's the riches of the depths of God's kindness overflowing into the poverty of our wickedness and restoring us. He goes on. He says, how, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments, how inscrutable his ways, who has known the mind of the Lord, who's been his counselor, who's given a gift to him that he might be repaid. So he moves from God's kindness to the depths of God's wisdom and knowledge, these two things that are sort of bound together in many ways. And he makes the statement, nobody is God's counselor. Nobody teaches God anything. Nobody gives God anything that causes God to be in their debt so that he can pay them back. Nobody instructs God. God doesn't need advice. You know, one of the things that like never ceases to make me cringe in any classroom that I sit in is when somebody thinks that they can debate the teacher into believing their perspective. Like, I don't know who thought it would be a good idea to make a Christian movie about a freshman who can best his PhD college philosophy professor that's not the way the world works. Uh, so if you are the sort of person who debates your professors, your professor may still be wrong, but please stop doing it. It's really embarrassing. 
And one of the most like awkward interactions I ever saw actually came in one of the best classes I ever took. There was a, there was a professor at the University of South Florida, a guy by the name of Dr. Strange, and he passed away actually just two months ago. And Dr. Strange, I'm convinced, was not human. Uh, <laughs> because he just was, was unbelievable in like every sense of the word. So he had a beard that made him look like Santa Claus, um, but he was an archeologist and he dressed like Indiana Jones. So he, he didn't just look like Indiana Jones, he was Indiana Jones in, in the form of Santa Claus. And he was one of the only Christians on, on the, the religious studies staff at the University of South Florida. So he taught biblical archeology, span Pauline epistles, and Jesus's life and teaching. And, and I was sitting in a Jesus' life and teaching class with Dr. Strange uh, when we were working through the Gospel of Luke. And there's a, there's a section in Luke where Jesus opens up a scroll and he reads from the prophet Isaiah to the people in his synagogue. And there was a guy sitting in front of me who was obviously like very skeptical. And so anytime anything was brought up, he was always uh, pushing back against what Dr. Strange said. And Dr. Strange is trying to be neutral and fair to what the guy has to say, but also sort of addressing his concerns. And so we read this passage, and the guy is like audibly registering his disagreement as we're reading it out loud. He's like sighing loudly and shaking his head. And finally, you have the chance to ask questions. And so he raises his hand, and he says, listen, this is obviously fake. Jesus is a carpenter from a city city named Nazareth that's only the size of a city block. Nobody would have known how to read in Nazareth. There's no way he opened up a scroll and read from it. Obviously, this is just something that's been made up to sort of fill in some gaps in the gospel. And then he sits back, and he waits for Dr. Strange, Santa Claus, Indiana Jones, to respond. And in the most gracious but devastating way possible, Dr. Strange kind of like puts his hand on his beard, and he goes, that's very interesting you should say that. You know, I, I wasn't here last week. Um, I was actually in Nazareth, ironically enough, uh, excavating the tomb of a slave from the first century. And this slave in Nazareth had written his own autobiography and had it buried with him. So, you know, if slaves could read Nazareth, carpenters probably could too. But good point, interesting thought. <laughs> Just crushes the man. <laughs> and I actually, I was going through my notes from this class a couple of months ago, and I actually wrote down the date of that just ultimate, like, smackdown. The, the point is, we, we have this sense, like, when we're really thinking about it, watching somebody from a position of ignorance argue against somebody from a p- position of expertise, it's silly. It's, it's absurd. And outside of how it works in movies, it doesn't work. Here's what Paul wants us to consider. It's not just that God is the smartest of all possible beings. God is the ground of all knowledge. The only reason that there is knowledge in and of itself is because God has willed it to be so. God is not just the smartest thing you could imagine. He's the ground of wisdom itself. Nobody teaches him anything. He never learns anything. You never can present something to God that he goes, oh my gosh, thanks for letting me know. I had no idea. Nobody gets to brag about informing God of something that was happening without his wisdom. He is literally incapable of growing in knowledge because there's nowhere for him to grow. He is the fullness of wisdom itself. That's that's a tremendous thing for you to know in your prayer life. That opens up an incredible window of honesty when you can sit down with God and say, I don't really like you right now. And he goes, I know. I don't really like what you're doing in my life. Oh, I'm perfectly aware. I think you could do this better. No, I couldn't. This is, this is the best possible way that it could go, and it's silly that you're even bringing this up. But feel free. Keep going. 
There, there's a window of honesty that's opened up when you understand that, that God doesn't change. He doesn't grow in wisdom or knowledge or glory or power or goodness. He is the fullness of all these things in and of himself. Paul says, who can teach God anything? Who can give God anything that causes him to owe people anything? And then he gets to this. He says, for him, through him, to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Here Paul's actually quoting the Stoic philosopher Marcus Aurelius from his meditations. And he takes that and he says, for all of the crazy things in Marcus Aurelius, this is true. Everything comes from God. Everything exists through God. Everything is for God. So that if we ask this question, where does it all come from? You can offer some sort of a mechanical explanation about a quantum vacuum, and that may or may not be the correct answer. But the ultimate correct answer for Paul to the question, where does it, where does it all come from, is it comes from God. If you ask the question, why is it still here? Why does it continue to be? Why is reality consistent from one moment to the next? He says all of this happens through God. If you were to ask the question, where is it all going? What's it all for? It's for God. All things have their origin in him. All, of their thing, all things have their termination in him. Everything exists for him. Covers every single bit of human reality. And then he makes this statement in light of everything he's just said in this song. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Listen, in light of everything Paul said, it could be no other way. We did nothing to warrant our salvation. We take no glory from God in that. God receives all glory for saving us. We have nothing to teach God. He knows all things. He's not impressed by our attempts at wisdom. Everything comes from God, exists through God, and is for God. There could be no other way. But to him is the glory forever. Amen. But it's important to understand this in light of what we've said, what Paul said here. Um, we talk a lot about glorifying God. Like we, we talk about glorifying God in the songs we sing, glorifying God in the lives that we lead. And I don't think that it's wrong to talk like that, but it's important to wrap your mind around this. Just like God doesn't grow in knowledge, he doesn't grow in glory either. God does not become more glorious because we sing good songs about him. God doesn't have some sort of like a glory deficit that he needs us to fill up. God is in and of himself the fullness of glory. So, so what does this mean when we talk about glorifying God? This, this might help us kind of understand what we're trying to get at. Um, so in elementary school and middle school, I didn't want to be a pastor. I, I didn't even think about being a pastor. Although in elementary school, I did try and baptize my brother in the sink at one point. <laughs> so maybe that was like germinating in the back of my mind. In, in elementary school and middle school, I actually wanted to be an artist. Um, and it was probably because I just watched a lot of Dragon Ball Z growing up. And I really wanted to just draw Super Saiyans fighting each other on alien planets. So I took a lot of art classes from like fifth grade to seventh or eighth grade when I realized that I wasn't very good at drawing and I wasn't getting any better. And one of the things that, that we did in my art classes is that they would give us this uh, black piece of paper, but it, it wasn't a normal piece of paper. Uh, it was thicker, and it had sort of a, a film on the top of it. It was almost like wax. The paper itself was all sorts of different colors. 
but the wax on top of it was black, so it obscured the colors. I honestly don't remember what the name of this is. I buried that dream of being an artist a long time ago, and I forgot everything I learned. But I remember this paper. It was almost like a scratch-off lottery ticket, except under it wasn't numbers that could win you money, uh, but it was all of these different vibrant colors. And then they would hand you, it wasn't a pencil, it was really just like a, a sharp object that looked like a pencil, and they would say, okay, you can draw on this. But it's, it's a different sort of art than having a pencil and putting it to a white piece of paper. Right? Because a white piece of paper and pencil, you are sort of calling into being something that wasn't there. You are adding to that paper what wasn't there before you put your pencil to it. But with this scratch-off art project, you're actually revealing what's always been there in the first place. As you take this sharpened pencil thing and you place it to the paper, you are uncovering what's always been there, whether you took pen in hand or not. And I, I think this helps us understand what it means when we talk about glorifying God. You're not adding anything to God. He's not sitting in heaven going, I'm really lacking in glory today. Somebody better start singing some good songs so I can recharge. But no, when, when we live in ways that honor the gospel, when we, when we sing songs that proclaim truths about God, when we interact with one another in a way that's faithful to the call of Jesus, it is pen to paper revealing what has always been true. That all things are from him and through him and for him. And because of this, to him alone is all the glory. It could be no other way. And so it is that we as Christians have this incredible task before us to live in such a way that puts pen to paper and reveals the reality of the world for what it is. That's a weighty responsibility because I do think that we can also live in ways that obscure what's true about God. We can interact with people in ways that veil the truth of who God is. We can sing songs that lie about God, although that's never our intention. And yet, for all of our failures, nothing changes in the fact that all glory belongs to him. In light of all of our mistakes, he never diminishes in glory. He never ceases to be perfect. And he will, at the end of all things, show reality for what it is, that all glory has always belonged to him. And so it's with that in mind that we conclude this series. Soli Deo Gloria. Glory be to God alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the awesome task of uh, opening your word. And we pray that the Spirit would take and sift everything that's been said, that you'd apply it to our hearts, uh, that what is untrue would fall by the wayside, what is true would be deeply rooted in us, that we would live lives uh, that demonstrate your glory to the people around us, uh, that you would lead us to love you more as we reflect on the gift of your word, the gift of grace the gift of faith, the gift of Christ, all these things done to your glory, the glory of your name. We ask that you would meet with us now at the table. We ask that you do this in Christ's name. Amen.